readings tonight. First reading is Psalm 16, which is on page 549. Psalm 16, page 549 in the Church Bibles. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, your eternal pleasures uh, at your right hand, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And our second reading is from Acts 2, uh, starting at verse 25, which is on page 1093. It's Acts 2, 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call.
With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Come on up, James. So with a relatively fast turnover in central London churches, there'll be some people here who don't know James. So like Yelena, uh, James was one of our ministry trainees here and has now gone to Vicar School, uh, where he is and is married to Katie. Before James preaches to us tonight, let's just pray for him and let's pray for him as he preaches as well. So do let's pray as we sit. Father, we thank you for the way that you used James powerfully during his time at St. Michael's. We thank you for our continued interaction with him and the opportunity to support him whilst he's training for the ministry. Lord, we pray that you will speak powerfully into our lives through James now. We pray that your Holy Spirit will be coursing through him as he brings your word alive to us. And we pray, Father, that in your mercy you will have a significant message for each one of us this evening. And Lord, we pray for James and for Katie uh, as James continues with his training. We pray, Lord, that you will shape them We pray that your hand will be upon their lives. And we pray that you will use them for a mighty work for your kingdom in the years ahead. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us back. It's been a couple of years and we've popped in and out, but it's always such a joy to come back. Um, It feels like such a treat. If we can have Psalm 16 open to start with, we'll end in Acts. But we'll start in Psalm 16. As Christians, I think we all know that we should worship God alone. We're told that pretty often, aren't we? Don't have idols, worship God alone. We know that he should be the first desire in our hearts. And we know that all other things in life should pale in comparison to knowing and being known by our God. And we know that we should be willing to lose everything we have for the sake of God. And we should be able to give up every other good thing in this life for God. But it's hard, isn't it? That's not an easy thing. It's hard to make God number one, and it's hard to love God exclusively, and it's hard to love him primarily and only. And that's because all the things, the stuff that God has created and that he's lovingly given to us, they're all so excellent. So the things he gives us, like loved ones, they're such a wonderful gift. People are so lovely, lovely, and they love us back, and we can feel that, and it's tangible. Or even the treasures of life that God gives us, like money or health 
or good career or fun holidays. The payback with that stuff is instant. It feels good. It's enjoyable. And so I end up, and we can end up, having a hierarchy. We know we should love God first and primarily. God's number one. And then after that, you say, yes, I love God first, but I love my family, and I love my friends, and I love my things that God's given me. You have this hierarchy. Here's the challenge from this psalm. It's in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Or verse 5, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You alone. Do you hear how extreme that is? Do you feel the shock of that claim? The exclusivity of it. You alone are my portion and my cup. Friends, this is tough. This is going to be a tough psalm. It's going to push me to examine my heart in some tough ways. Can I say what this psalm is saying? If I lost my wife, and if I lost my comfortable flat, and if I lost my reputation, and if I lost my career prospects, could I still be happy? Because I can say with David, apart from the Lord, I have no good thing. He alone is my portion. I'm happy. I want to be able to say that. But if I'm honest, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I could say that. Well, I don't know if you've ever wondered what a psalm actually is. We spend doing, time doing stuff like that in vicar school. Um, we know it's a song. We know it's in the Jewish hymn book. They would sing it in, together in temple. And we know that David wrote this one, don't we? It's at the top there. A miktam of David. What's it intended for? What is the point of writing it down? You can see it's super autobiographical. Did you notice that as we read? It's like David's personal testimony. So verse 1, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. It's like that throughout, just the whole way through. Lots of me's, my's and I's. It's David's personal testimony. It's all about him and his experience. But I think this is more than just David's diary. It's more than just him trying to express his feelings about God for the sake of getting them out there. I think there's more to it. I think because of the public nature of Psalms, because they're meant for public singing, we've got to think David wrote this with an agenda. He's trying to motivate the people to do something. Or possibly to feel something. By way of illustration, I think David's not only the author of this song. I think he's also the choir master. I think you can almost imagine him in temple having written this, watching the people singing his words. He's leading them in worship. Think of a Matt Redmond tune that I think we used to sing when I was there, when I was here. 10,000 reasons, bless the Lord, in brackets. He writes this, 
Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul. It's autobiographical again. That's what Redmond's doing. It's, it's all about me and my. But he's doing more than just autobiography. He's not just telling us for the sake of it. He wants us to take his words as our own. He wants to be our choir master. He wants us to take this truth that he's expressing and feel it as we sing it. I think that's what David's doing here in Psalm 16. He writes a song that expresses his feelings and he invites us to join in with him so that we can feel the same as him. He's being the choir master. He's leading us. Right, so let's look in detail at what the choir master wants us to join in with. Um, so first point on the service sheet, on the back of the blue one, the challenge. And we're looking from verse 1 to 6. And I think David, the choir master, is challenging us. He's saying, for me, God alone is enough. Is he enough for you? Is God alone enough for you? What we're going to do is we're going to slowly, a verse at a time, just try and live in that challenge of that question. We take all six verses and we're trying to let it hit us as it really should. So I'll read a verse. And if the meaning's simple, I'll just throw out some reflection questions for us to think on. If it's a bit more complicated, I'll try and explain and then throw out some reflection questions. So verse 1. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Can you sing this with David? Is God the place in which you take refuge? Is he the place of your safety? Or do you look for your safety elsewhere? Do you look for safety in your family or in your pension scheme or in your employment? Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. We've looked at this one already, but is it true for you? Can you sing this with David? Is it true that apart from God, you've no good thing? Is it true that all the other good things, if they were taken away from you, maybe children, maybe physical health, if they went, could you still praise God? And then verse 3 surprised me. David's just said, apart from you, I have no good thing. Then he says this, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. It seems strange, doesn't it? He's just said, you're my only good thing. Now he's saying, I delight in the holy ones. What does that mean? Well, I think the answer is that God's holy people are an extension of him. So think of when Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. So God's people, his church, are an extension of him. Here's a challenging question. Can you sing this with David? 
Are God's holy people, the church, the folk here at St. Michael's, are they your delight? Do you delight in them above all else? Is a mark of your love and your soul devotion to God your love and your soul devotion to his people? Or verse 4. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their names upon my lips. Can you sing this with David? Can you say that you will not make offerings to other gods? Can you say that you will not take their names upon your lips? Those other things that can become gods to us like the job or the family or the health. Isn't it true that they do end up demanding our libations of blood? We put in more hours at the office than we'd like. Family can feel like it requires more emotional energy than I actually have. We can spend so long sweating and eating boring food to keep our health. Can we say, I'm not going to run after other gods? Verse 5. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Can we sing this with David? Can we say, God, you are enough for me? I don't need anything else. God, you alone are my portion and my cup. There's nothing else I want. Or finally, verse 6, David writes, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Can we sing this with David? He's doing something interesting here. He's using Levite or priestly language to describe his own inheritance. Well, what's interesting about that? Well, the family of Levites, they were the only family, the only son of Jacob, he had 12 sons, the only ones they were set apart as priests. And they were the only ones who didn't get an inheritance. So David's quoting earlier in the Old Testament, and he's using that language, and he's saying, my inheritance, which is materially nothing, that is good for me. That is pleasant to me, he says. It's delightful. David's only inheritance is the Lord. Can we sing this with David? Can we be happy to say with him, Lord, you alone are enough for me? Brothers and sisters, this is the challenge. Is God alone enough for you? And honestly, the answer for me is no. Can I sing the first half of the psalm along with David? Probably not. No. If I was in the temple, if I was in his choir, and we were singing, I'd probably have to stay silent. I really, really want this to be true. I would love to be able to say to God, you alone are enough for me. But the bar is just so high. It's so exclusive of everything else, isn't it? It's so all-encompassing and absolute. And I'd have to say, no, this psalm truly doesn't reflect my heart this evening. I love the things of this world too much. 
I love my family and my reputation and my comfort too much. I can't sing this with David. So that's David's autobiographical challenge to us. He says, this should be what your heart is like. He says, come sing this with me. Come and sing this with me. And I say, I can't. I cannot do it, if I'm being honest. And then I think it gets worse, because the second point on the handout, motivation, the motivation. I think he follows on with the, from the challenge with the benefits of living his way, the benefits of accepting the challenge. And the awful thing is that I really, really want those benefits. They're truly wonderful. To me, they're exactly what I want out of life. But they're unattainable. He offers us, in this section, purpose. And he offers us happiness and security and ultimately heaven. But they're out of reach. Because my heart is an idol factory. And God alone does not feel enough for me. So, if one to six is the challenge, can you worship God alone? Seven to eleven is, you, you do the challenge, you get the most glorious, most wonderful life with God. Let's have a little look at it together. So, verse seven and eight, he promises us purpose. He says, the Lord will counsel him. He says, even at night, his heart will instruct him. He will keep his eyes fixed on the Lord. David's testimony is that he has a purpose. He knows what he's to do. He knows where he's going. I want that. Don't you want that? I want purpose and I want counsel and I want to know what I'm doing with my life. That sounds great. Or next, verse 9, he promises us happiness. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. I want that too. I want to feel glad and I want my tongue to rejoice. Do you see how David's motivating us to accept the challenge? And the next one he he promises is security. It's a big theme in the psalm. It's in verse 1. Keep me safe, my God. It's here in verse 8 and 9 too. Verse 8 says, With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Or verse 9, My body also will rest secure. Is that not something we all want? Security and certainty and safety. Is that not motivation for us to set our hearts solely on the Lord? But then I think David saves best till last. Let me read from the end of verse 9. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The last motivation he gives us is really the final frontier of security and happiness that no idol can offer us. 
Nothing in this world is going to stop us dying. No pension scheme or loving family can save you from the realm of the dead, from decay. No meaningful job or girlfriend or boyfriend or fun holiday can give us eternal pleasure. We know that pleasure fades. Friends, the promise here, the motivation, is to be eternally joyful in the presence of God. That's what David says, to do the challenge. The motivation is eternally joyful in the presence of God. That's great motivation. That's one I desperately want. That's one David says, mine, if only I can follow his way of life. If I exclusively, at the expense of all else, follow God, if God alone is enough for me. But there's a problem. Would you turn to Acts 2 with me? It's on page 1094. Uh, Luke and Acts are the same book. They're just written on two different big pieces of paper. And in the storyline so far, Jesus has been born, lived, died. He's been crucified. He's come back to life. And he's, he's recently ascended into heaven at the start of Acts. And then in return, the gift of the Holy Spirit has been sent in his place. And he has filled and indwelt the disciples. And as that happens, Peter stands up in the middle of Jerusalem to preach. And do you see what he does in verse um, 25 to 28 of, our, of, our, of Acts 2? He quotes our psalm. He quotes Psalm 16. He quotes it word for word from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And you see verse 29. Fellow Israelites, he says, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and is in his tomb and and his tomb is here to this day. Do you see it's awkward? Do you see the awkwardness there? Peter stands up in Jerusalem and he quotes King David's great psalm. And then he points to David's tomb over there. He's just finished reading. You will not let your holy one see decay. You, will, uh, you have made known to me the paths of life. And then he points at his tomb. And he says, look, there's David. David's corpse has long since rotten. He's a pile of bones in Jerusalem. Well, what's going on? Why have we spent ages looking at David's psalm? And yet the things that he was motivating us with weren't true. Was he a liar? Or was he all mouth and no trousers? Or was he, like us, unable to live up to his own standard of exclusive worship? Well, what does Peter say? Verse 30. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Do you see that? King David wasn't a liar. He was a prophet. 
He spoke about the future. He spoke about a future king who would sit on the throne. Do you see what Peter's saying about how we should read this psalm? Don't read it as David's autobiography. Read it as Jesus's. This isn't David's song after all. This is Jesus's song. Jesus is the true singer of Psalm 16. And then if you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? So Jesus is the only one who throughout his whole life could truly say to God, apart from you, I've got no good thing. You alone, Lord, are my portion of my cup. He showed that time and again. He left his family. He left his job and his security. And he left his inheritance. And ultimately, he left his life in obedience to God. Jesus is the only one who could accept this challenge from Psalm 16. And Jesus is the only one who can win the benefits of Psalm 16. And it makes sense of the psalm again. Jesus is the only one who never saw decay. He died, but he rose before his, his body ever decayed. Or if you think about where Jesus is now, it's like verse 11 in our psalm. He's ascended. He sat at the right hand of the Father in the presence of God, experiencing that eternal joy right now. Friends, Peter says this psalm has always been about Jesus. It's never been about David. And then scan down in Acts 2 to 36. Let's have a look at what Peter says. It's pretty brutal. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Peter exposes the ultimate act of idolatry. God himself came down to earth in the person of Jesus and we killed him. We hung him on a cross. We didn't like the real God. We preferred our man-made ones and our idols and our rules and so we crucified him. And then verse 37, the people get it. They hear what Peter's trying to do. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Brothers and sisters, I hope as we've read through the psalm, you felt a bit cut to the heart. That's how I felt in my prep. As I read the challenges, I thought there's no way I'm getting them. They're unattainable. And then as I really wanted the benefits, the motivations David gave us, I thought, I can't do the challenges. There's no way. I hope what we're doing is asking what the Israelites were asking in Acts. Brothers, what should we do? And Peter gives the most glorious answer. Verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That is all we need to do. We don't need to be able to sing the psalm. We don't need to be able to hit the challenge. We need to repent and be baptized. In the name of the only one who ever could, Jesus Christ.
And as freely as that, as freely as repenting and baptizing in Jesus' name, our sins are forgiven and our idolatry and our God disloyalty and our inability to rely on God alone, they're gone. And in its place, we get the spirit, Peter says, and we get Jesus' track record of perfect God loyalty, perfect obedience. Friends, the really good news about Psalm 16 is that I've been singing it wrong the whole time. I've been leading it through, us through it as if it were David's. This cause and effect, you do the challenge, you get the reward. You exclusively worship God, you get the benefits. And we've been sad about that because I can't do that. But that's not how it works at all. Peter's completely changed the game. He says Jesus is the choir master. Jesus is the only one who can actually sing this. And we, by grace, we get to sing along in his choir. We get to be led by Jesus as he conducts us. So that's how I want us to sing this psalm now. As forgiven sinners. As those who are in Christ, covered by his righteousness and his perfect record. And as we read verse 1 to 6 of the psalm now, we can think, yeah, in Jesus I've done that. We can say that as confidently as if we've done it ourselves. Jesus has done it for me. We can point to our choir master who's leading us and say, He's the one who passed that challenge for us. And then as we read the motivation in verse 7 to 11 of the psalm, we can think, oh wow, what a great privilege. What a great way of life that Jesus has won for me. That purpose, that happiness, that security, that end of death and eternal joy in his presence. That's mine. And one final thought, because I know that by tomorrow, the old idols will rear their heads. And the reality of your perfection in Jesus and what he's won for you might feel less real tomorrow than it does right now. Singing this song with Jesus as your choir master and me in the choir by grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit in me, that will gradually make me more and more like the choir master. My desires will be changed. My old love for the old idols will gradually be replaced by a new love for God alone. God really does care about my heart. Even though it's all on Jesus, he cares about my heart. He cares what I love. He cares what order I love it in. And he intends to change it. He'll do that by his word, Psalms like Psalm 16, and he'll do that by his spirit. And he plans to work powerfully in you to make you more like the choir master. Let's pray as we finish. Father God, we cannot live up to the challenge of Psalm 16. We want to, but we find it impossible to worship you alone. Lord, we thank you for Jesus.
We thank you for his perfect obedience and the way he followed you. Thank you that he has won eternal life for us. God, thank you that in Christ you will not abandon us to death, but that we will be in your presence experiencing that eternal joy. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen.